Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined by Damien McBride, former special advisor to Gordon Brown. A controversial figure in Westminster, Damien worked at the heart of government for over a decade, at the Treasury and then Downing Street. A key member of Gordon Brown's inner circle, Damien oversaw Gordon's campaign to become Prime Minister in 2007, going on to become his right-hand man on media issues. He was forced to resign in 2009 after the newspapers splashed on his leaked emails, which showed he had discussed the possibility of spreading false rumours about Conservative MPs. In his memoir, Power Trip, he confesses to briefing against senior Labour colleagues and manipulating the media, famously calling himself a nasty bastard. Damien, quite an introduction there. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. <laughs> when did he call himself a nasty bastard? It seems to ring a bell, but I can't remember that one. Uh, I, think, I think probably uh, in an interview with Jeremy Paxman or something like that. I, th- I think it, it was when he was putting a bunch of things to me about sort of, you know, do you agree with these descriptions of yourself? And, and I said, yeah, I've, I've said, I'll say far worse about myself, you know, in, in terms of how I, how I behaved at the time. But uh, I think people regarded the book as very confessional. And and had some people try and interpret this as, oh, is this a religious thing? Is this, you know, purging yourself of your sins? And, and in some ways, it, there was a more practical element uh, to it than that, that. I thought if the book was going to have any credibility at all, the one thing I didn't want was anyone to be able to say the day after it was published, well, that's all very well, but he hasn't admitted X. And so, you know, probably the worst things I admitted in in that book in terms of sort of briefing against other ministers, like Charles Clark, like the story about Ivan Lewis, which which led to a sort of News of the World splash. I felt it was important to get those off my chest, even though I was being told by close friends, whatever you do, don't admit to that, you know, because you'll be dead within the Labour Party if, if you admit to briefing against other ministers. And I just I just felt to myself, well, look, if I know I'm going to have to do interviews after this thing, I don't want to have something put to me and say, but what about this story? Weren't you responsible for that? And, you know, am I going to, am I going to sort of get all this off my chest and then immediately start lying again? So I thought I just had to come clean about everything and, you know, didn't have much option. But it also meant that um, lots of the things that I've been accused of over the years that I haven't been responsible for, it made it easier in some way to then be able to say, yeah, look, I, you know, I told you I didn't do that. You know, if, if I had, it would be included in the book. So in a sense, you're your own media advisor then, insofar as, you know, <laughs> get, that's what I'd advise my clients, get everything out in one go, and uh, and then no one can ever accuse you of withholding stuff. Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily have been... I wasn't my media advisor uh, in, in, to the extent of um, how the book came out and, uh, you know, the sort of various... The, all, all the stuff that went around that. I mean, it was absolute chaos and carnage in Brighton when we went down there to... Such do, great videos. I, mean, it, it, I felt great, terribly it, sorry it, for you. Very, very amusing videos but um i mean it just felt to, to be in that 24 hours knowing that i would do this totally differently if i had my own way i mean you know it's great for the publishers because it, it was sort of maximum publicity for them you know you could accuse ian dale of knowing that when he, he was uh he was sort of uh, you know wrestling the bloke on the brighton pier absolutely but, um, brilliant at the same time you know i was sitting there thinking this is everything that i've always tried to avoid a politician doing is being in the middle of these kind of scrums and being chased down the street by cameras and all that kind of thing and uh so to some extent that sort of hurt my professional pride as i had people saying to me afterwards god i'm surprised you agreed to that and I was and I was thinking well it's because there was something different you know that was publicity for the book whereas if I was just sort of protecting my own image then it would have been done very differently do you miss it though do you miss being at the the heart of Downing Street in in the thick of it as it were the times that you do miss it and I've, I've chatted to some other people that were in in similar roles before the times you do miss it are when you can see something unfolding and you think oh you're making exactly the mistakes that you know, you, you should know how to avoid here. And, um, I mean, that really came home to me immediately after I left uh, Number 10. Um, you know, people forget the sort of confluence of the timing here. That was April 2009, and immediately afterwards, the expenses scandal broke. And I was sitting there at home just, 
you, you know, simultaneously thinking, what the hell am I going to do with my life? But at the same time, tearing my hair out about how that was being handled media-wise. And and that was an incredibly frustrating thing to go through because I knew how much damage it would do to Gordon on top of everything that had uh, happened with me. And, and weirdly, I wasn't able to give any advice on that occasion, whereas I had been able to give advice about how to handle you know, my own resignation, you know, and I remember this conversation where I was where I was telling the media guys, all right, guys, you've got to really stick the boot in uh, to me, say that I've been off the rails for a while, say that, um, you know, my drinking's been out of control and all this. And they were taking notes on all this. You know, this was going to be their briefing script. Yeah. And they were saying, well, oh, people think it's pretty vicious sort of sticking, sticking the boot into you. And so I said, no, but you've got to do it. You've got to, you know, sort of, it's vital to establish that I'm this, I was this maverick character. Otherwise, people aren't going to believe that uh, I wasn't at well in a way that was sanctioned by number 10. So, I mean, that was the truth, that I wasn't sanctioned by number 10, but it was important to sort of establish a narrative around that. So I was able to give that advice. And so it did feel frustrating, literally two, three weeks later, when expenses was breaking, that I couldn't get on the phone to someone and say, do, do this, do this, do this. Were you grateful, though, that in a sense that the narrative had moved forward, that something else to occupy the media, something as huge as expenses, kind of took the, the limelight away from you a little bit? Because it can't have been nice. No, it wasn't, it wasn't nice. And, you know, I remember... Um, I think it was three weeks afterwards that I had successfully avoided any cameras the entire time. And I was walking down to Arsenal uh, for an evening game and um, there was a cameraman noticed me or was waiting for me or whatever and was taking pictures. And it was weird. I was I was simultaneously ignoring the fact that this bloke was snapping away at me, trying to get a rise out of me walking down the street, but simultaneously thinking, you've got no chance of selling these. No one cares anymore. You know, it's, it's, not, it's irrelevant. And... Uh, and strange. I mean, it burned in my memory because that night I met my friends outside the ground, and one of them was missing. And uh, and my mate told me one of our mates, his mum, has had had a stroke, and um, so that's why he wasn't at the game. And that was the first I'd, I'd known about it. And so I'm standing there dealing with that sort of terrible news and sort of trying to find out what she's like. And the, and the snapper's just sort of thinking, "Oh, well, this is great." He's just standing there, totally in the open, and looking ashen faced. And and it was the only time I've ever come close to just thinking, I just want to swing for one of these guys, you know, because usually I'd be totally professional about any journalist that was in your face or doing whatever. But I just thought, oh, get out, you know, you're not even going to sell these pictures. Just get out of my face. Um, and of course he didn't. You know, I never, I never saw those pictures see the light of day anyway. Well, the thing is, I'm, I imagine they'll take thousands of pictures. Some they'll sell and some they yeah, won't. It's yeah. just it's a completely random game, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I sometimes do a bit in radio, too. And when you go into the reception there, there's always loads of paps hanging around outside. Yeah. And you think, yeah. what's the point? You know, why bother? But then, then you see, you know, someone appear on the the mail online the next day, and you think, oh, they've obviously had a few bob for it. it must be yeah. worth it. Can't be much of a life, though, can it? Well, I mean, I know I know a couple of guys that do do it for a living, and uh, it's all about just getting that sort of perfect moment, uh, or the or the moment when sort someone, you know you've just caught someone at that at that exact point i mean one guy i know that is a paparazzi he was so furious at me that when on the night that my book was first serialized i was out drinking with a friend of his in kentish town and he said he said look i could have made an absolute packet if you just told me where you were and he said i would have been totally inobtrusive or just taking a picture of you coming out of the pub and all it would have been was a sort of here's the guy that's causing today's headline news and here he is boozing in his in his favourite Kentish Town pub. Like thought, a normal person yeah, nursing yeah. a pint. And uh, you know, he was he was so angry because he just said, you know, that's that's how I make a living. I could have made a fortune for that. So you you know, I, 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 my mindset was always you've got to understand that all these guys, journalists, interviewers, uh, cameramen, 
they're all just doing it to make a living. None mm. of them are doing it because they they sort of have this visceral need to sort of embarrass people or intrude on your life or sort of make someone lose it on camera. You know, they're just doing it to make a living. And, and I think that's a thing that is important to tell politicians. I, I used to constantly say this to Gordon, is that he would come out of interviews absolutely fuming and sort of saying, that guy, that guy, mm. he, he's trying to do me in. And I was saying, no, good impression, actually. Yeah, I've I've, I've had enough practice over the years. But that was his attitude, was always, it was personal. You know, Mm. this, and and so he would always politicise things. It was always, he's a Tory, he's always been a Tory. Mm. And and it would be all that. And and I I used used to think, just trying to sell papers. You know, they're just trying to get people to listen to their interviews, but it's not—it's not a personal thing. So you know, don't take it that way. And I mean, that that certainly helped me deal on a personal level with when when I sort of had this sort of went through this process of vilification. That you know, I was able to speak to journalists who would say, who would say, right, I've got to pour a bucket of shit over you tomorrow. So um, uh, it's not personal. Yeah, but you know, uh, so don't read my paper. And I would say, no, I will read it. You know. I was thinking just then of the Godfather when uh, Michael Corleone said, "Never hate your enemies; it clouds your judgment." And do you think that's where Gordon went wrong a little bit? That he was just too passionate about it. Yeah, and and, and also seeing enemies everywhere. I think that's the, I think that's the other thing that gets you is that um, if you are so paranoid that you interpret anyone that disagrees with you or has a difference of opinion or whatever you know if you interpret that all as they're out to get me you know and they're trying to kill me and they must be a tory then you can't ever get anywhere and and i know so many politicians that will you know their attitude to certain whole whole newspaper groups is oh well you know uh, i will never deal with a male and you think what do you mean you'll never deal with the mail? And how can you have that sort of mentality about sort of some of Britain's best read papers or, or the broadcaster who is going to be political editor of ITV or Sky or BBC for the next five, six years? How can you have an attitude that just says, right, well, I don't deal with them? I think it's a, it's a crazy position that some politicians get, get themselves into just because you can tell the ones that are capable of rolling with the punches and just saying, look, it's all fair. You know, I had a bad week. I'll have a good week next week. Whereas you can tell the ones that just get themselves sort of sucked into this place where they think everyone's against me you know i fear slightly for the jeremy corbyn machine at the moment that they are getting themselves into this very very dark place where it's all oh well everyone hates us and it's not that we're doing anything wrong it's just that every uh, you know everyone's out to get us and and the trouble is once you get into that mindset as gordon found you can't get out of it and he and he he got himself deep in that territory uh, i would say after i left and I'm, i'm willing to claim some credit for this that I was one of the people that always, always kept him out of that hole. It just convinced him it's the next speech we'll turn it around uh, or the next announcement. And, you know, I've got this great bit of stuff that we can leak about the Tories. You know, always the next thing that you can turn things around. I remember um, speaking to uh, Tom Baldwin, Ed Miliband's press man. And, you know, I mean, they, they had a difficult five years. But, I mean, they didn't help themselves. And part of the reason they didn't help themselves was they did get themselves into that hole themselves, which they couldn't get out of. And I remember saying to Tom, when he was in a very dark mood uh, party one night, I remember saying, Tom, what have we got coming up? What are you, look, what are you looking forward to? Because it was always the question I asked myself, is what's the next thing you can do that will get you, get you turn, turn the corner and get you back on the horse? And he just stared at his shoes for about 15 seconds and then walked out to have a cigarette. As, as though I deliberately tried to say something to offend him, you know. And, and, and I just thought, well, he's clearly thinking, well, I'd, I've got no good answer to that question. And I thought, if you've got no good answer to that question, if you've never got the plan to, about how you can turn it around, 
you can't survive in this. But it's not only that as well, because I, I want to kind of restrict the Labour bashing, because I've been a party <laughs> member for 20-odd years as well, and yeah. I, I, could, uh, I could bash them as, as strongly as you are. But in a sense, it's almost that he was even irked that the question shouldn't have been asked, because of course it is. It, you know, this is a business, as you say, and it should be done mm. in a professional way. And, you know, arguing with the media how we want it to be isn't the same as arguing as how it should be and working with it as it is. Yeah, so yeah. It was a missed opportunity there for us. No, exactly, exactly. And, and it's, it's interesting that successive Labour leaders have done this in, in different ways. I mean, Tony Blair had a sort of interesting thing in that he got to a point where he thought, I'm giving up on news. I'm giving up on news media. What I'm going to concentrate on is my relationship with columnists. Mm. And so right until the end... Blair worked very, very hard at his relationship with, you know, you go through your senior columnists at every paper from Anne McElvoy to uh, Peter Riddle. And Blair worked very hard at those relationships and hard at keeping those channels open. And it's almost what he focused his media attention on. And to some extent, relationships with editors, or some of them anyway. At least he had something. So at least he had somewhere to go to. And, and you look at what the different leaders have done... And with Gordon, it was sort of, um, I think he got to a stage, certainly after after I left, where he was just totally in the bunker. And eventually got to that stage, which uh, is a terrible place for politicians, where they think, I'm just going gonna, gonna to go over the heads of the media, which you can't do. I mean, you know, nobody, nobody hears you. Uh, or 500 people in a hall might hear you, but, you, you know, 5 million, 5 million people reading, reading the top tabloids won't. So he got himself into that place. Ed Miliband got himself into a place where just in the hope of getting some good press he would just deal with the guardian the observer mm. and and all his exclusive would be given to them and it was crazy and it was just it was just so that Tom would be able to walk in and say, oh, look, we've got a good splash in The Observer. And who cares? You know, if, if, you, if you're buying The Observer, you're probably going to vote Labour anyway. Uh, and now Jeremy Corbyn is in this place where, you know, he's almost a permanent war with the media and sort of, again, trying to go over their heads. And and it's, it's interesting. Is it is it different for Conservative leaders? I mean, I think I, I've spoken to journalists that say right until the end, John Major would go through the motions of doing his round of interviews with local newspapers in Plymouth if he was going on a visit down there and you know when he was dead in the water would still be sort of going through the motions of thinking well I've got to do this I'm prime minister you know and and maybe maybe it is different maybe they feel more less embattled by the media. I mean, one of the things that really struck me about God, I mean, clearly you work for him, you knew him much better than I did, but I met him about 10 or 15 times, had mm. a few brief conversations with him, and he struck me always as a very personable, very nice, mm. very uh, charismatic man, actually. And I always thought it just didn't translate in the media for some reason, that he felt he had to act a certain different way that was actually less impressive. I don't know whether you would agree with that analysis. There's a, there's, yeah. I always think of Gordon when I think of that Have I Got News For You moment when he's smiling. They always used to roll yeah. out that clip, didn't they? And then the minute he thought the camera was off him. He kind of went a bit yeah. dour. And I actually thought to myself, you should have been dour all the time, because yeah. if that's you, people would have connected with that. No, exactly. And, and I think he was pulled in lots of different directions by people that would tell him, oh, you've got to smile more. And and, and, and the thing is, the one thing I always tried to get Gordon to do was just be yourself, just mm. be natural. Don't do any, you know, don't do anything on top of this. And and almost get him into a place where he could just translate that sort of, almost not notice that the microphone had suddenly come on, or not notice the camera, because he was a very personable person mm. off camera. Mm. But as soon as the camera went on, Firstly, he became gripped by this paralysis about how he's how he has to look, and then starts doing false smiles and mm. and this kind of thing. And secondly, goes into sort of discipline mode, uh, message mode. I mean, there's, there's there's an interesting media story which um, I don't think has ever probably been told. It's this great thing that the old GMTV did um, in the run up to the um, well, it was it was it was a long game before the sort of uh, what was going to be the 2010 election. So they were doing this in sort of 2008 2009 that they introduced what they described as the swing voter family. 
couple with two young kids and uh, who I think were from Middlesbrough. And um, they said, right, these are going to be our test couple. And uh, they don't know how they're going to vote. And they're going to meet Gordon Brown. They're going to meet David Cameron. And we were both, this was sold in to me and sold in to Andy Coulson. And we both said, yeah, of course, yeah, we've got to do it. You know, uh, you, can't, you can't pass up a chance like that. But I, I was genuinely worried about it. I thought, oh, you know, how's this going to go? Is Gordon going to be able to get on with them? And, of course, what was fascinating about it was even though there was this huge bidding war, so Gordon had them into number 10 with the kids and spent a lot of time showing them around number 10 off camera and all this kind of thing. And um, Cameron responded to that by going up to their house. So this was the, you know, it was this bidding war about who can. And there was real jeopardy here, was there? That this couple oh. were going to actually go public on who yeah, they decided yeah. to. Yeah, and, and who they were more impressed by, and that, and that kind of thing. So you couldn't avoid it. But equally, it was incredibly high stakes. What was fascinating was, firstly, when they came out of the the, the Gordon session, what they were really impressed by was that he invested a lot of time before they did all the stuff on camera and doing their reactions afterwards what did you think of him and then once they'd finished all that he said um well my kids are home now so do you want to come and meet my kids and did all that so did all sorts of stuff as far as they was concerned that he didn't need to because it was all over by then mm. you know it was all finished but it, it was just him being personable and him being human friendly. being stuff yeah they kept in touch and um long after he stopped being prime minister gordon was still sending them christmas cards wow that kind of thing is you know just as, because he he as far as he was concerned they had become friends of his family now david cameron very interestingly they were very charmed by him came into their house very pleasant this kind of thing but um he did this thing when they did a break in the interview uh, so they went back to London and Fiona Phillips did a little connection thing and said, right, we'll be back with the Charltons and David Cameron after after the news or after, after the ad break. And so they went off air in Middlesbrough and apparently David Cameron reclined in his seat and said, I can't stand that woman, about Fiona Phillips. And To this family? To this family. Wow. And, you know, he, he would have thought, well, I'm just being, you know, just being chummy and being personal. But, of course, as far as they were concerned, they love Fiona Phillips. Of course, she's TV's Fiona yeah. Phillips. Yeah, and, um, and and what they really took umbrage at was he was just being perfectly nice to her, yeah. you know, down the line doing doing this interview. And and they just thought, well, that's a bit two-faced. It is two-faced. <laughs> and, and, and so that was that was the, the impression they formed, regardless of policies or anything else, were just, well, there's one bloke here that's quite genuine and, and is on camera the way he is off or even more personable off camera whereas there's another bloke who's a bit sort of you know he's one thing for the cameras but he's another off it and um i remember you know going through that episode and being fairly sure afterwards that you know this couple would end up saying they were going to vote labor and just thinking if he could do this with every person in the country you know if only he could do this with every person in the country and even camera could do it but you know that's the that's the nature of politics. You can't, and that's why you need the media. You know, you need to be able to go through them and sort of somehow communicate that 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 sort of personality. And that's something that Gordon found incredibly difficult to do. He just wouldn't open up. I mean, I know quite a few people on on, on Ed's team as well, and uh, I've worked with him for many years. And, and there seems to be this kind of view on the left in terms of communications mechanism, as it were, that that it's just an inconvenience. It's uh, you know something that we'll do on the side while we focus on the policy matters or whatever. And they don't seem to engage with it as no, this is the main event this is something this is our way to connect with the british people i mean in the same way in the way that everything with labor until you know this generation is totally gone everything is about sort of well tony did it this way so we've got to do it differently and 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 because Blair was seen to be far too much in the pockets of the media and everything was done for the media, mm. you know, there was that deliberate sort of Gordon trying to sort of go in another direction. And then Ed Miliband's people almost sort of defining the problem that both Blair and Brown had as being, well, they were too caught up in media strategies 
competing media strategies, but that, that, that's what they were focused on too much. And therefore, we've got to be totally different. We've got to be about sort of rising above that and uh, having principles and policies that will appeal to people. And then the media is just a vehicle to sell those to people. It's not an end in itself. And and that's partly because Ed Miliband, to this day, regards his defining moment in his leadership as being taking on news international over hacking. And, and as far as he was concerned, well, he was being told by lots of people, you can't do that, including me. I mean, I was, I was one of the people advising at the time that this is absolutely lunacy. And yet, you know... As far as he was concerned, he did that. He took his stance. That was his big defining moment. If only, He thinks to himself, if only I'd governed or if only I'd led the party the way that I led that, that hacking debate, if only I did that throughout my time uh, in, in the job. And probably tells himself now, if, I, if, only I did, if only I'd done that, then I would have been more successful. I mean, the problem with Ed, as I see it, is he kind of portrayed himself as an anti-establishment, anti-Westminster type mm. candidate, but clearly wasn't. He was clearly, you know, Labour Party royalty. It's the same problem I have with Andy Burnham, much as I like him. You know, he was, I got really, it got really tedious during the election campaign, the leadership election, for him to say, I'm, I'm not a Westminster yeah. inside. He's the consummate yeah. Westminster inside. Why didn't he just say that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, do, do you think that there is, that Corbyn is actually the, the culmination of a, of a genuine anti-politics feel now that these kind of three pounders have hijacked the party from my point of view or from the other point of view where they say look we're, we're re-engaging you know we're getting back involved in politics and the fact that the PLP don't particularly like their leader is actually a badge of honour for, for the Corbynites. Uh, yeah and the, and the fact that you know the media don't like him and, and what I keep thinking about Jeremy is he's got the right politics for the moment but he, he just may not be the right person because he can't sell it. And if you had, I mean, it's very interesting looking at someone like Tom Watson, who got almost the same mandate as uh, Jeremy Corbyn in terms of those three pounders and the sort of number of votes that he got uh, in the in deputy leadership election against arguably a tougher field. And yet Tom manages to sell it better. Tom can get up there and convincingly say what it means to be anti-establishment. Whereas mm. I think that's the slight problem with Jeremy and the team around him at the moment is that they they just can't get it across to people in any kind of meaningful way and, and they keep getting themselves in these traps of thinking well we can have logical conversations about things like terrorism and the, the approach to Syria and that kind of thing and you think well, yes you can have logical conversations but you don't give people easy sticks to beat you with you know and, and think about what you're saying on these subjects and nobody would want to go back to the days of Gordon when it was just that total message discipline that it just was I would rather people switched off their TV than listen to me because I don't <laughs> want to make a mistake. But you can't have someone that goes into an interview and doesn't think, right, what am I going to say on, on some of the key policies? And almost has that little bell that goes off in their head that says, I've just been asked whether I agree that terrorists should be shot on the street. And, you know, it would be a bad thing to say no to this. Um, you know, a bad thing to say it doesn't make me happy. And, and I, th- I think uh, my worry with Jeremy is that He's so far out of the kind of, um, you know, that training that most politicians have or the sort of discipline that most politicians have that he just doesn't have that internal bell that goes off in his head. And I don't think he wants to because I think he thinks, well, that's part of who I am as a politician. And, and the trouble is, I don't think you're going to be able to sell that to people. I mean, clearly it works with the people that have voted him in. The, mm. the more the, the, the media have a go at him and, and the more of these kind of gaffes that he makes, the more they think, well, that just shows you that he's the real deal, that he's not going to play the Westminster lobby game. Yeah, it does. And and the question is, is that enough? Um, I mean, I think it's enough to hold that coalition together and sort of not disillusion the people that voted for him. I mean, that was always the great danger that he faced, is that he had the, he had the worst of all worlds. He, he was failing to sort of win over the public, but he also disillusioned and alienated the people that had voted him in. And but at the moment, the, the risk is that's all he's ending up with. 
you know, so it's the it's the equivalent of you know Russell Brand not being massively popular outside the people that watch watch his podcast. But mm. um, you know, is that enough? But without wanting you to get your crystal ball out, do you think it's mm. inevitable that uh, he will fail? Because I mean, at the moment, I, I'm not confident enough to make any predictions at all. Everything I thought I knew was turned out to be complete bollocks. Well, yeah, uh, and and I've said that. I mean, look, you could take you could take a broad view that you know no governing party is going to lose an election unless there's an economic crisis and and arguably you could go back over the last 50 years and say that that's been that's been the case possible exception being in um when the Macmillan home government fell it was more because of a political crisis mm. but you could argue that sort of you know if the conservatives face an economic crisis over the next four or five years before the election then they will pay the price for that as all governments do and they'll they'll lose and is Jeremy Corbyn well placed to take advantage of that? Well, arguably he is because he's one person that will totally stand out against what has been the kind of you know abiding capitalist financial system for the past thirty years. So that's my that's my best case scenario for Jeremy, which is not a great case scenario for the, for the country, but that he is able to capitalise on on a sort of complete collapse in our financial system, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and in that scenario, I can see him winning an election. If that doesn't happen. I don't know how. I don't know how he does because I don't think he's. I don't think he's in a position to take advantage of anything else. The irony is, though, I wonder if there's lots of people like me that actually, uh, you know, are closet supporters of certain issues mm. with Jeremy, but overall think he's not a credible prime minister in waiting, and therefore we need someone else. Because I would rather that Labour be in government doing things, to, mm. to, to put it as simply as that, than be in opposition. And I wonder when we've not had a credible leader, and we seem to have had a litany of them recently, uh, whether we're going to be condemned to be on the opposition benches forever. Well, yeah, and there is, there is that danger. I mean, you know, you then get into the territory, and and I think this is what even some MPs that are friendly to Jeremy are saying is is well, geez, have we actually got the right politics here? Have we got the right agenda? Is this are we tapping into a zeitgeist, which is a sort of anti anti politician feeling? But have we just got the wrong person to sell this? Now, who the right person is, I don't know. I mean, I've heard a lot of people argue that that actually Labour would have been better off with John McDonnell in the position because he he does sort of cut a, a more sort of... Quite like John, credi- actually. Yeah, he, he cuts a credible figure and he's sort of strong in interviews and he's sort of, decent, you know, he's getting better at Parliament. But I think this will this is what's going to be interesting because you think if there was a... If Jeremy walked under a bus tomorrow, would the outcome of the the leadership election be any different in terms of what kind of politics would win? I mean, you know, what happened to Liz Kendall in, in, in that leadership election is so instructive. Nobody is going to win with this current sort of Labour membership and the three-pounders. Nobody is going to win with a kind of, well, we've got to wait the Tories policy. David Miliband wouldn't stand a chance of he going back in at, at the moment. And nor will people like Chukaramuna and Tristram Hunt who have walked away from this this cabinet and sort of not even stayed in there stayed in there sort of to fight their corner so i think it'll be really interesting to see sort of who emerges as the kind of credible figure of the left or even a kind of you know this is where i think that someone like tom watson is very interestingly poised because he does have instinctively socialist values and principles but is quite sort of hard line right wing on things like law and order and and, and that kind of thing. and then it's that you know almost that old fashioned uh, sort of Labour thing about sort of well you know we believe in sort of our community and our families and sort of you know they're robust on that kind of thing and standing up for our country but at the same time we believe in taxing the rich to make sure that people aren't uh, having to use food banks and and it, I think there will be someone that emerges with that kind of popular appeal 
and there are, as I say, there are a few there already, like Tom. Here's a question that I could put to you as a kind of media master, as it were. Is that, is that maybe Jeremy's done something good insofar as he's been a disruptor, that he's, he's broken the media out of this narrative, of this paradigm that we got into, where, um, you know, any politician that thinks aloud is immediately having a... It's a gaffe, as it were. Mm. That, you know, there's everything's a dissent. I, I remember... I mean, I stood for Parliament in 2005, mm. and, and I remember one of the... Uh, we were, I think it was Foundation Hospitals at the time. There was mm. this big debate about it, but no-one actually cared about the issues, about what, yeah. whether private capital should be introduced in what way. It was all about... Blair's battle with his backbenchers. Yeah, yeah. And I remember Sky News having a kind of dramatic sting music for the vote that night. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking, this is the end of politics. That <laughs> like, little kind of dramatic yeah. sting music thought, no one cares about the actual issue. Yeah, yeah. It's just about Blair versus the backbenchers. And do you think Jeremy could actually get us out of this kind of the problem? I mean, the other thing is, you know, the lobby, I wanted to talk to you about that because mm. in a sense, that's got a little bit toxic, hasn't it? Because, you mm. know, you've, you've got them being overly critical and, and involved in this gladiatorial style uh, reporting and combat. But on the other hand, if you turn the tap off to some of these journalists, they're, they're frightened of that as well. So in a sense, you can, as you wrote in your book, you can use that to your advantage. Yeah, but I think the danger, the reason it can't work, and this is, this is a sort of internal Labour Party discipline problem, is that the lobby can't be in a position where they've got no Labour voices and they can't sort of report a Labour story. So... If Jeremy had his MPs in total lockstep behind him, then if you turn the taps off to the lobby, yeah, it does make life difficult for them, and they'd start to have to give him a hearing and start being fair in their coverage and this kind of thing, because they think, well, otherwise we can't reasonably present what is happening on the Labour side to to them. The problem Jeremy's got is he's got 100 MPs who are only too willing to wander around the lobby slagging him off and, and saying, right, this is what happened in last night's PLP meeting. So they're doing their job. They're reporting honestly and to some extent fairly and objectively what is happening inside the Labour Party but it's all negative because they're getting it all from from uh, you know disgruntled backbench MPs rather than rather than sort of any kind of proper communications team around Jeremy. I think it'll swing back to us ultimately because I, I can remember when Haig was leader of the opposition and then we thought we can't get any worse than that and then it was IDS and clearly you couldn't get any worse than that and then they found Michael Howard. I mean it, you know it just seemed to get just to the point where you thought these guys are written off for, forever they then bounce back and bounce back more strongly than ever. I mean that is all I've got to cling on to at the moment is that maybe 10 years from now in a way that we can't envisage right now yeah. we'll be back in government with the majority of 150 and everything will be great again. I sounded very naive as I started. <laughs> Well, I mean, let's let's put those roast-tinted glasses on and and say how will that happen? I think that the IDS Howard Haig route for us would have been going through a sort of ever lighter group of sort of Blair imitators. So you know, we could work our way through. We could happily work our way through Liz Kendall, Chukaramuna, Tristram Hunter's leader, and find that everyone just looks at them and goes, "Well, if we wanted that, we've got George Osborne." So. Why don't we just have him? Or we've got mm-hmm. Boris Johnson, and he seems to know what he's doing, whereas you you guys don't, and you don't seem to be able to control your own party. So, even though they're more attractive figures than IDS or or Howard, I think that would have taken us down that route of just sort of almost kind of permanent irrelevance. What the new politics under Jeremy gives us is this chance to become relevant, is this chance to stand up for a different kind of group of people and to build a sort of different kind of coalition which is a bit anti-politics which is manages to reverse the massive decline that we've had in turnout amongst the working classes and, and young people and which has a kind of different kind of appeal in 
as I say, in a world where people are asking fundamental questions about sort of well, what the hell are we doing? You know, if if there was another financial collapse, and as I say. I think it gives us that chance. I think we need to find a leader that can sell it, or Jeremy needs to sort of transform himself into that character. And then we have got a chance, you know, because in some ways Labour can become a kind of populist movement, which which we've seen has been sort of highly successful and suddenly successful in, in lots of countries across Europe. So I think it, it does have that chance. I mean, I you know, I had a sort of interesting conversation with uh, someone from UKIP once where I said, I said, could you ever imagine doing a deal with Labour? And they said, uh, well, not unless they've changed their position on Europe. And I said, you guys don't care about Europe. I said, yeah, I know you, make, you blame it for all your ills, but what you really care, care about or what you purport to represent is being a populist working people's movement. And, and you use Labour as a stick to, to beat people with over that. And I, I, said, I said, look, if you end up with 30 MPs, this was in the high, high days when you thought they were going to get sort of 30 MPs at the election. And well, we all thought that, yeah, yeah. And, and And that, you know, Labour in that context, because they take the seats off the Tories, would be the largest party. I said, we should sit down straight away afterwards and call this the People's Coalition. And uh, in, you say you're representing working people, so do we. That's what we're, that's what we're about. It's the People's Coalition between UKIP and Labour. And, of course, it never would have happened. But interestingly, why would it never have happened? Not that UKIP would never have done a deal over it or Europe would have uh, collapsed it, but because there are far too many people inside Labour that would just say, I would never do that. And and this is almost, this captures the part of the problem that Labour's got, is they cannot understand why someone would vote for UKIP. And they assume that that means they're racist mm-hmm. or they assume that they, that means they're uh, anti-immigrant or anti-Europe or, what, or whatever. Um, and they don't get that, that for many people... It is just a sort of protest against the kind of politics that we've got. And it is just a way of saying, I want someone that speaks up for me because none of you do that anymore. And and if Labour was able to sort of harness that, I'm not saying do a deal with UK, I'm saying if it was able to harness that feeling of all those people feeling disenfranchised and feeling that none of you look, you know, you're all the same and none of you look care anymore. So I might as well just go with the one uh, who looks the most competent, in which case you know, I'll vote for David Cameron and hold him my nose. Not with any great pleasure. Then, you know, that's what Labour has got a chance to do. And that's how Labour can get back into power, not by thinking, oh, well, the way we're going to do this is by neutralising the Tories and getting as close to them as possible and trying to be vaguely more popular than George Osborne. So what are you up to at the moment? Because you've moved on from Caffod, haven't you? I mean, and, yeah. and, and also, how do you kind of deal with, um, you know, being so incredibly noteworthy in, in, at one <laughs> part of it and defined by things which was fair and unfair at the time? But clearly you've moved on now professionally and personally. Do, do people still hold that against you? Where are you at the moment? Yeah, it, it depends. It depends what's going what's going on. I mean, it's interesting. I, You know, so I've been writing for newspapers and doing broadcast work for the last year and a half or so. And um, what I always find interesting is that I'll speak to other people that will say, oh, I'd, I'd like you to do a bit of work for our, our company, um, but if you wouldn't mind keeping it quiet, you know, because uh, obviously you're a bit notorious. And I think, well, what's what's the worst that can happen? That that a newspaper finds out about this and the same newspapers that are employing me to write columns for yeah, them exactly. say, oh, this is unacceptable. <laughs> this, this company's employing this guy. So that is starting to wane. You know, I don't get that as much as I, as I did previously. It's a bit risk-averse as well, because actually you're an incredibly effective operator. I think it would be a, a credit for someone to have the nails to hire you, surely. Uh, I, 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 I couldn't, couldn't agree more for. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, and, and it is funny. And, and you do get people that... Um, that will want me to come and have chats with them just because they'll sort of want that perspective and, um, you know, and sort of want to get that sort of feel from inside politics. I mean, what's interesting generally in the job market that I'm finding at the moment is that it's been so flooded with Labour people. 
since since the election that, that I've had about fifteen apply for jobs with me. Actually, well, I mean, but you, you know, but you you'll know that there are lots of HR people in different companies that won't have a clue who any of these people are, but will just see the name Labour on a list and think, oh, well, that's useless, that's useless, you know, and toss them all in the bin. And uh, well, I mean, I, I I work with one of my clients. I won't name them, and they said if they ever see any mention of a trade union on a CV, they just bin it immediately and have done yeah. for thirty years, and that's one of the secrets of their entrepreneurial success, <laughs> which they proudly say. You know, anything mention of a union, yeah. Means that it gets fouled under B. No, anyway, so no. I interrupted. Exactly. No, but um, but uh, you know, I don't know whether that worm turns um, at any point. And and you know, it's one of these things that I think in the PR industry generally, in the media industry, I think people are struggling to come to terms with what this new politics is, and that, and that's why, in some ways, I think people are quite keen that it just doesn't take off and that they, they kill it at the outset because I don't think people know how to deal with it. And um, in the same way that I think people look at some of the sort of mass popular movements at the moment uh, that, that are around and uh, and almost just there is this sort of fear that you know are these guys nihilists or anarchists or what you know what is going on here how do we get a grip of this and I, th- I just find it an interesting phenomenon about our society at the moment that the things which are, can command huge popular enthusiasm and you know w- w- regardless of how offensive they are something like the sort of the, the way that the english defense league suddenly took off mm. and i was teaching in a school at the time and um I, I was talking kids through all the different sort of political parties, and one of the, one of the kids asked me about the English Defence League, and I sort of tried to present in a quite objective way what their policies were and sort of why they were different, and the fact that they they allowed people of different races in, but you know, defined themselves as being anti-Islamic. And it was amazing to me that of a class of sort of twenty kids, you got about fifteen of them saying, "Well, I'd vote EDL," you know, and Jesus. and and depressing as it was. It was, what was interesting was that they could grasp the appeal of, of something like that. And you talk to kids, you know, you talk to young Muslim kids in order to understand, well, what is the appeal of, of something like ISIS? Mm. Why, why would some of your friends say, oh, yeah, I support what they're doing? And I, th- I think it's incumbent on all of us to, to just sort of try and drill into what is currently sort of, you know, popular movements, especially amongst young people, and just get a grip of that. Because I think there's a danger that, you know, for too many of us, this becomes the, this other world, and we just can't understand it, and therefore we just want to sort of boot it out or, or reject it, rather than sort of try and get to grips with, well, this is a phenomenon, and try, try and understand this, you know, the same way that parents in the 1950s tried to understand rock and roll, and, and thought, right, it, this is an important cultural phenomenon, we need to understand it, and um, there's not enough of that going on at the moment. I think there's just too much rejection of what's, what's out there. Last question then. You had what I consider to be the best job in the world. You were the media guy for the Prime Minister. Mm. In a sense, is, is everything from your career from now on a kind of, you know, you, will it ever match up to that? Or do you have to try and find something new as a new challenge that will be as good as it? Because it's the dream job, isn't it? It is to some extent, except doing it, you know, I would say I had nine miserable, hard, painful days and nights for everyone where I thought, oh, this is great, you know, this is brilliant. And the important thing, as, as I said before, is to remember that you've already al- always got that one day coming, which makes the other nine worthwhile. But I can imagine people getting worn down by it. And I never did, you know. I mean, I, I mean, it, I, I got worn down by my own behaviour and that sort of thing, and that eventually sort of cost me cost me the job. But I never sort of turned off my phone and stopped getting up and coming in. And, and I think, in some ways, it's that discipline that trains you for any job you might want to do but also i'd love to be working in a job where it was nine good days uh, for every one bad one and i talked to a lot of people that work in different industries and it does sound like that and i think oh, that sounds great <laughs> you know i wouldn't mind i wouldn't mind reversing the roles and it being like that for a change damien it's been a pleasure i've learned a lot thank you for your time thanks paul 
A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!